I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to today's edition of the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton Show podcast. Welcome in, Clay Travis, Buck Sexton Show, Wednesday edition of the program. It appears we have a speaker. He is Mike Johnson. A lot of you would not know him, I would imagine. I did not know him beforehand from Louisiana. It appears that he is going to have the votes uh, when the vote is officially cast on the floor of the House of Representatives. So that is underway. We will update you on all of that. Lots of news coming out of Israel, including the United States asking Israel and Israel evidently agreeing not to invade Gaza until there is more American support there, raising a lot of questions about what might be coming. We'll have Buck put on his foreign affairs hat and analyze all of that for us. But, Buck, I want to start with the response that we've seen in the United States to the Hamas attack, particularly on college and university campuses, which has been a big story. And last night, as uh, I was getting ready for bed, trying to get the Travis boys to go to bed, brush their teeth, do all the things that parents have to do as they get their kids ready for bed, um, I saw a story, and I couldn't believe it was real. And I actually waited about a half hour and kept doing research on it because... I just, I couldn't believe that this could have been happening. And so uh, I, I think most people out there know I went to George Washington University. We've talked some about where we went to school. It is a school just about four blocks from the White House in Washington, D.C., and it has a population that's close to 30% Jewish, which is a big population of Jewish students. I think it was even higher than that when I was enrolled there 20-some-odd years ago. And actually, Buck, when we were in D.C. last week, I walked through GW's campus because the school had received a decent amount of attention because there had been a pro-Hamas protest that had taken place on campus featuring uh, students. And so I just kind of wanted to walk through the campus like someone would who went to college, see what it looked like, see what the vibe was. That was last week. Last night... 
near the center of GW's campus, Buck, is the Gelman Library. And the Gelman Library was named for and, and funded by the donations of Holocaust survivors. There are many high donor individuals at GW, if you walk through the campus, that are Jewish. The GW population has largely been Jewish for some time. Lots of people from Long Island, lots of people from Philadelphia, lots of Jewish families have sent their kids to GW for some time uh, down the coast from New York and Philly and, and Boston. It's a very common school there. Being put on the side of the building by a student protest were the following phrases on, again, a library that was built by Holocaust survivors to educate students at GW. Glory to our martyrs. Divestment from Zionist genocide now. Free Palestine from the river to the sea. And more. But those are just three examples. If you want to see pictures of it, you can go to my Twitter feed. I'm sure we'll post a story about it up at clayandbuck.com as well. And Buck, we talked about this a little bit, I think a couple of years ago. And we've talked about it on the show since because it's sort of laughably absurd. But GW removed, it had been the Colonials, George Washington, the Colonial Army. So the idea was that the mascot was the Colonials. It was a GW uh, mascot. They decided that it was too closely, the GW administration did, too closely connected to the idea of colonialism. And a lot of people kind of laughed it off. And honestly, the colonial army, we were the colonists fighting back against the the colonization. So it's the exact opposite of that. But a lot of people laughed it off. But, Buck, I think it was a root symbol of the toxicity that had taken place at the university. And this is now the natural outgrowth of it. And the fact that this is happening not only at GW but everywhere is, I think, frankly, alarming. I mean, imagine if after 9-11 on college campuses across the country, there was a little bit of this, as I mentioned, but not anything like what we've seen here with the anti-Israel, anti-Semitic stuff. But imagine if right after 9-11 there were on, I mean, dozens and dozens of campuses that we already know about, protests, displays like this one, uh, placards being held up about how, you know, bin Laden has a point about U.S. imperialism in the Middle East, basically, right? You know, what bin Laden's uh, philosophy is about the U.S. needs to get out of the, of the, you know, Islamic uh, holy land, etc., um, that he's got a point, and so it's really our fault. I mean, we, we would have viewed that with abject scorn, um, and thought that the people that were pushing that line were um, horrifically morally deranged. And that's what I think about what's going on right now with these college kids. And this is what has been, I think, such a wake-up call for, for so many people. Um, there's, there's really, it's very hard not to see what happened on, uh, on, in Israel a couple of weeks ago. And, come away from it thinking that it's in any way morally different from or separate from al-Qaeda, ISIS, uh, the worst jihadist terror groups that we've dealt with over over recent decades. And so 
you know, how did we get to this place? I mean, that's one aspect of it. I mean, I think campus culture, um, has been getting increasingly, uh, not, not just left wing, but kind of virulent and, and angry and really feeding into, uh, the malcontents mental illness about reality and, and their role in it. Um, but for this to happen at a place like GW or a place like Harvard, or I mean, you go to the list, these sorts of things are occurring at very, very well-known schools is indicative of how far this rot has spread. You know, there are some interesting articles, Clay, that are showing Hamas leadership in Qatar and they, you know, Qatar is playing host to them. You know that Qatar has donated billions of dollars to U.S. universities over the last, uh, I think last two decades. They hosted the billions. World Cup. Well, Sure, but I'm talking about you know, on college campuses specifically. I'm talking about hundreds of millions of dollars donated from Cutter to schools like Georgetown, uh, like Cornell, you know, these institutions funding schools of politics or schools of international relations, etc. And that's just Cutter. Same thing with Saudi. You start to go down yeah. the list. Some of these Gulf state ties into academia and the funding of these Middle East studies departments and, you know, what kind of professors are they hiring? And this has been happening a little bit under the surface. But, Clay, when you follow the money, you start to see that there has been an influence of Mideast radicalization on these campuses going back for 20 or 30 years now. I, I, Buck, I, I think it's a question that adults have to be asking now. I, and I, I said earlier, I don't like the idea of expelling students for sharing political opinions. I, I think that's the wrong opinion. We talked about they're, this. They're going to want to expel students for using the wrong pronouns. As you know, this is the problem. This is what we that's, run up against. This is the, the precedent. And look, UVA, uh, Carol Markowitz mentioned this with us earlier this week, I think, when she came on, that University of Virginia expelled a student for criticizing BLM protests. And, and didn't actually uh, even say the thing that she was alleged to have been correct. said. Correct. Yes. But, but that, that, that is emblematic of the, of the high stakes emotional world that can be created. So I don't like the idea of expelling students. But I would say this, and you're seeing this happen at the University of Pennsylvania. You've seen it happen at Harvard. I do think it's time for the donor class. For people out there who are fortunate enough to have the resources to be able to subsidize universities and education to say, we're pulling our donations. And, and I would say this to anybody listening who has resources that is donated to GW. There is something toxic in the culture now. And this was not there, Buck, when, when I was a student. I, I, I can't imagine after 9-11 at GW there being uh, students who were saying America deserved it. Now you've talked about it. Some of the places that, uh, around Amherst where you were that that started to happen. Now closely, to be fair, GW, you really were in the center of everything. They thought the White House was going to get struck from the rooftop of a lot of the, uh, GW dorms and apartment buildings in the area. You could see the smoke from the Pentagon. It's very close geographically. So this was something that people innately felt in DC and New York City, uh, in a way that didn't necessarily strike directly at the uh, experience for everybody else. But this to me is connected to the idea that we're going to do away with the word colonials or we're going to coddle these kids and give legitimacy to things that are untrue of what they believe. Mm-hmm. And it has to be addressed. I do think, because I, I know we run up against this problem of if we start to empower, or rather if we demand and support that campuses expel students for saying 
the, you know, saying things that we think are, are, you know, beyond the pale, we know the pendulum will go in the other direction and they're going to say, oh, well, if you don't support reparations or if you don't support BLM or you don't support trans rights or Again, whatever your be, point, you're not using you know, pronouns correctly. We're going to kick you out of the school. You're, you're going to be removed from the school as well. So I, I do think that, you know, if you're going to be advocating for free speech on campus, that does include speech that is grotesque, unfortunately. But I also think there's a uh, a pretty clear line that can, and that doesn't mean that, you know, there's not counter speech and there's not, this is, you know, awful and this, look, this show in a sense is counter speech to what's going on out there. But I think that there's something else here too, because some of this stuff, and the left has tried this with the, you know, silence is violence or whatever. But yeah. some of what is being advocated on campus really is incitement to violence or, or is, is walking right up to that line, right? Calling for the extermination of people, supporting violence against groups of people. And, and when you're so, putting on the side of a, of a building built by a Holocaust survivor, glory to our martyrs, that's getting very close to creating a situation that is ripe for confrontation in a physical way. That's what I mean. You know, this yeah. is, you know, there is a line. You're not a free speech absolute. You know, if you can be a free speech absolutist or, or you know, as close as you can get to it, but still recognize if someone stands on top of of a car in front of a mob and says, you know, go attack or go kill the, the you know, the so-and-sos, that's something else. That's actually criminal. We, have, we you know, we have this basis in law for this and we, we have a basis in law. Um, you know, the, you know, free speech, obviously people talk about threats against government officials, for example. I mean, that's, you know, you claim free speech, you make a threat against the president, you're going to prison. It's not like, yeah. uh, it's not like that there's a, a true absolutism already that exists. And I, I do think that some of what you're seeing on campus walks right up to that line and maybe, and crosses that line. Uh, I, I think that you're crossing that line when you're saying that, you know, you support a mass murder that just occurred and you want, you know, more of those actions. Like that's, now, you know, you have to look at what the specifics are. You have to look at what the actual verbiage is being used. Um, so that's one component of it in terms of how I think the campuses should be reacting. And to your point about the donations, you are seeing donors pull back. And you know that more than more than half of college donations come from people who who donate over a million dollars. It doesn't surprise me at all. Big right? donors I mean, carry a big a big part of the uh, donation I, load. Buck, when I sold OutKick. I got a lot of calls from everywhere I went to school and, and GW was hitting me up, hitting me up. And, and I got a call and I said, look, when they changed the word colonials, I, I, this is, this is again, people thought some people were like, Oh, you're crazy. What do you care about? This is symptomatic of a root foundational issue that I think is revealing itself now. And so for adults, I said, no, I'm not going to donate to GW. I've got the money to be able to do it. Uh, I appreciate my time there. But I'm not going to do I'm not going to support and countenance the way that adults are coddling kids. And I think there need to be a lot of people doing this where there is a financial incentive to actually return educational freedom. I, I, you know, I was a history major, Buck, at GW. And we used to talk about in history classes how it was such a Jewish dominated school that it felt like every history class would ultimately somehow end up on the Holocaust, right? You could be in black history and somehow you end up on the Holocaust. You could be in, you know, the history of the Civil War and somehow you end up in the Holocaust because for GW of all schools to end up with this, this level of death to martyrs on a, on a the library, I, I, if it can happen at GW, 
it can and is happening at all of our elite. And I'm not even saying GW is that elite, but it is a good school at all of the high end. I mean, $70,000 a year parents are paying now as a scholarship kid. Well, look, look what happened but, at but Harvard, it's crazy. right? I mean, yeah, you know, right. it's happening, it's happening at, at all these institutions. Um, if, by the way, if you have a, if you have a, uh, a, a child, a kid, a uh, young adult on college campus, um, and they've told you, your daughter, your son has told you that they've seen some of this stuff. Uh, we want to hear from you. 800-282-2882. Support U.S. funded resources in oil and gas assets. Phoenix Capital Group invites you to invest in the heart of America with domestic energy corporate bonds. Phoenix Capital connects private investors like you with investments in t- intangible domestic energy assets. Investing in these high yield corporate bonds can yield annual interest rates of nine to 13 percent with monthly payments. Uh, Phoenix Capital Group offers various options with different rates and terms to choose from. It's a vote of confidence in the American dream. Be part of the backbone that built our nation. To learn more, download Phoenix Capital Group's free investment packet today at phxonair.com. Before making investment decisions, you should carefully consider and review all risks involved. Learn how you can diversify your investments and earn 9 to 13% APY. Download the Phoenix Capital Group's free investment packet today at phxonair.com. Clay Travis and Buck Sexton. Chalk up a win for Team Reality. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on, but we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and Search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's reality podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, been juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast. And this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm gonna talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic, and then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Second hour of Play and Buck kicks off right now, everybody. Thank you for being here with us. Uh, some really interesting numbers here um, coming out. Actually, I've got a bunch of numbers that I want to get to today on the show, some relating to immigration, uh, some relating to migration, meaning within the U.S. And here we have five. This is the latest U.S. Census data. 545,498 New Yorkers left for other states in 2022. You would be one of these individuals, right? Um, yes. Close to it. Uh, yep. Uh, this is, this is the, the latest census data. So this is, uh, I, I fall into this category. And look, I'll, I'll say this. I still, uh, I, I still love New York. Like I, there's, I, I love New York City. I love New York State. I think New York State is one of the most beautiful places in, you know, if you're in the right parts of it in the country. Um, I think New York City is still the greatest city in, in America, but there are reasons people have decided to start to go elsewhere. I don't know if it'll be permanent for all of them. Some of them I'm sure will end up going back. Uh, but I just want to give you the breakdown because this, this is a part of the big blue state to red state migration that we have seen. Now it's interesting because in the data, uh, and this is all U.S. Census data, you had about 44,000 move to Pennsylvania. So that's okay. That's just right next door. Same thing. New Jersey right next door. 75,000. A lot of people move to New Jersey and then 50,000 moved to Connecticut. Now that's partially, I'm sure, just what happens in, in New York. I should look at what some of this, uh, on a regular year, what it looks like, but people move to what they consider suburbs. You know, you can live in the burbs, certainly in New Jersey and Connecticut and commute into New York City and have, you know, bigger house and, and your, your tax situation is going to be a little bit better. And, and also, Buck, probably a function of that is the number of people who are working remotely. They can now, if you only have to come in two days a week to, to Manhattan, you might be willing to make that commute two days a week, and you were never willing to make it five days a week. So I agree. I, Those states, like that's yeah, a lifestyle absolutely. choice for a lot of people. Some people don't mind it. I mean, I know people that commute two hours uh, each way to work every day, and that's their Some of our staff that. has big trips in the New yeah. York City studio. I, I mean, I, I think if you can kind of get into that zen state of just you're reading or you're listening to podcasts or the Clay and Buck show, obviously. Yes. It's what everyone should be listening to on their long commutes. But I can understand, for people who don't mind that, you get a lot of financial benefit. You get more more value for your dollar. But what's really interesting, this is what I was trying to get, what I was going to get to, the number one of all states, number one state for the 545,000 New Yorkers who left. And remember, they left in 2022. This isn't yep. height of the uh, of the pandemic kind of stuff, necessarily. This is, you know, they've been there. They've been in New York 2020, 2021. Leaving in 2022, uh, 91,000 moved to Florida. So I'm among the 91,000, 91,201. 31,000 went to California, which is interesting. And then 30,000 went to Texas. Okay. So the red state migration here is Texas 30,000, Florida 91,000. So Florida by far got the most, uh, New York residents moving there in 2022. Big part of that, Governor Ron DeSantis, how he runs this state. Uh, I would note Donald Trump among the former New Yorkers that are now full-time Florida residents, and also Trump's, um, uh, I think, uh, well, certainly Ivanka and Don Jr. are Florida residents now. Um, I'm not sure if, uh, I think Eric might still be a New York resident, Eric Trump. Anyway, 
Uh, there's been a lot of, a lot of movement, a lot of change for people here. And Clay, I, I think this trend is going to continue. I don't know how these states plan to stop it. I mean, even just today, Eric Adams is reminding everybody, we can't take any more migrants. The budget can't handle it. And we know what Democrats, their response in many places to, um, the flight of high earners is to try to tax the earners who stay even more. Yes. And so this is, you create this cycle of you're overtaxing people. This is what blue states like New York can, can I also point out if you're a New Yorker who left for California, because people always worry about this, uh, in the red states, they say, Oh no, I don't want all these New Yorkers. The New Yorkers who moved to Texas and Florida are the Republicans. Right? They're, they're the much more likely to be Republicans. New Yorkers who moved to California, you might get some Democrats mixed in with that. That, that may just be they want the better weather. Yeah, and I would also think there's a lot of cross-pollination in general between New York and California. But I think what you hit on is 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 the essence of this. COVID made red redder and blue bluer. And as someone who lives in a red state, I can tell you that as suddenly all these New Yorkers, all these Californians, and all these Chicago area residents all moved into my neighborhood, a lot of the people who'd been here for several years and lived here pre-COVID or certainly like me are born and raised in a, in a state like Tennessee – uh, got nervous. And so there are license plates you'll see or shirts you'll see, don't California my Texas, don't California my Tennessee, because there's a lot of fear in the red states that these people are like locusts. They've destroyed the place where they live now, and they are now coming somewhere else to, uh, to wreak havoc there. What we, what, what I have seen in the state of Tennessee is what you're saying, Buck. The people who are leaving are coming and they're actually sometimes redder than the people who are already living in these communities, and they're coming because they are desperate to get to some form of sanity. And here is what I think the essence of this is, Buck. I can't imagine anywhere in America that I would give up 15% of my income to live there. I'm just being honest with you. I love the state of Tennessee. If the state, I'm born and raised, I'm 44 years old, I've been here almost my entire life other than college and when I practiced law in the Caribbean for a couple of years. If the state of Tennessee came to me and they said, Clay, we're going to take 15% of your earnings, I would move to Florida or Texas. And I think what happened was a lot of high earners, and I, I would bet this is the scary thing for New York, Buck. I bet if you go look at those 545,000 New Yorkers who left and the 91,000 who went to uh, Florida, and the 30,000 who went to Texas, I bet they're some of the highest earners in the state of New York. Because a lot of people who make a lot of money, and you know this, initially when they worked on Wall Street, they're like, oh, I've got to be close to Wall Street, or I've got to be close to New York City. My business wouldn't work if I run private equity or I run a hedge fund and I weren't based in New York. And then COVID happened and everybody went all over the country and they all worked remotely and they found out that the business still worked just as effectively. This was a risk that those companies never would have taken, I don't think. But then when COVID happens and everybody distributes, not only all over the country, but all over the world, and the companies see, uh, continue to be profitable, a lot of those guys, and they're mostly guys, I mean, think about this, Buck. If you are fortunate enough to be making $10 million a year, and that's a lot of those hedge fund guys, a lot of those private equity guys, you going to pay $1.5 million for the privilege and the benefit of living in New York City or L.A.? Or Chicago, I mean, or or would Clay. you take the one and a half million in your pocket? The more money you make, the crazier it is to be paying state income tax. So, so here you go. The top New York City rate right now, I just looked this up, is 
they say it's 10.9, effectively 11%. And the top city rate on top of that, if you live in New York City, is 3.8. So it's, it's basically 14%. Yeah. So you're looking at a 15% tax rate if you're, if you're considered a, a high earner in New York City. And you also, because of, and this actually happened in the Trump administration, the SALT deduction got, you know, got property taxes are insane. That's right. Yeah. You don't get to write them off anymore. You don't get to write off, you know, uh, your, your mortgage, uh, the same way you used to be able to. So th- this means that the blue, that blue states and blue cities, they've created this problem because they have this massive, um, this massive spending apparatus. That is only going to want to spend more and more and more. And it's really a combination of Medicaid and government, just government in general, government services. Very inefficient. Mayor Adams is dealing with a New York City where this is in the New York Post today. He said, never in my life have I had a problem that I did not see an ending to. I don't see an ending to this. This issue will destroy New York City. That's what he says about the migrant crisis. Yep. The polling here says 58% of New York City which is 80-something, they're going to have to start cutting services. Cutting services means dirtier streets, more crime, you know, less people to provide the services that you're supposedly paying the up to 15, 14, 15% tax rate for. And I think that these other states are going to be major beneficiaries of it. The only thing that I can see coming down the line for people who are, you know, right now we got people listening in, you know, Oklahoma and Texas and very red states, you know, are saying, ah, not my Tennessee, yeah, not yep. my problem, New York, right? They're going to want federal bailout money down the line. They're going to want federal tax dollars to shore up these failing cities. I mean, did you even see, um, I think, uh, James Woods shared this on his Twitter account. It's a video of not, I think it's Knob Hill in San Francisco. Did you see this making the rounds? It's beautiful. And one of the most wealthy parts of New, of San Francisco historically. One of Beautiful neighborhoods. I mean, I remember I've been to San Francisco. I'm only to San Francisco, uh, San Francisco once. Spent a few days there, just tour, just touring it as a tourist. Yeah. And and a couple of the places that I went because they were so famous are among the shuttered. You know, now the windows are all boarded up places in Knob Hill. At some point, you would think the Democrats would recognize that this is not. Um, it's not a mystery why this is happening in these places. This is cause and effect. D.C., Washington, D.C., where we just were last week, Clay, the D.C. mayor is considering trying to roll back some of the, you know, crime policies, that basically soft on crime policies that they have because they realize that this is becoming far too dangerous for people in the city and, and it's hurting business and it's hurting people. 25-year murder highs in, in uh, Washington, D.C., where we just were, and... Look, I, I know a lot of you out there are struggling because suddenly you've got 8% mortgages. And we talked about yesterday, you know, you've got $9 friggin' gallon of, of, of orange juice. You got $9 cereals. And you're looking at, if you're in California or you're in New York and you're paying 15% effectively for the privilege of living in New York City or LA, I think a lot of people, it's not the high earners, right? If you're a $10 million guy, one and a half million extra dollars is a lot of money. You're already wealthy. If your family makes a hundred thousand dollars a year, which as you pointed out, Buck, isn't that much money when you consider how much it costs to live in New York City. The amount of money that you're paying in taxes is 
through the roof still. And I, I just, I, I think a lot of people are making the decision as much as you might like New York City, as much as you might like LA, as much as you like, might like Chicago. There are a lot of cities that are really nice that aren't New York, LA or Chicago. And many people are making the decision that it's better for their families for them to be there. And this is why I think we're actually going to be behind. And this is going to be significant. 2024, get ready for this. 2024, Trump or whomever the nominee is as a Republican is going to win red states by a margin that we have never seen before. I think this is going to happen. Because so many people who are from Illinois or New York or California that might have voted red have moved into those states. And we're going to need to recalibrate in a big way, Buck. But we're not going to have a new census till 2030. So in 2024 and 2028, there are going to be huge, massive, unseen-before red state wins for Republicans. Like Florida is a perfect example. Remember when everybody was like, 2020, oh, Florida is going to be close, and Trump won it by like three and a half points or whatever it was? If Trump's the nominee, he's going to win Florida by eight or nine points this year. I mean, Florida is looking more like Alabama than it is, uh, than it is Wisconsin, right? In terms of how close it's going to be. And that's going to be a massive win, but the congressional seats are not going to have been reallocated yet for all these people that say the New Yorks and the Californias of the world are losing. I think by the 2030 census, we're going to be trying to catch up to what the reality of the COVID realignment has actually reflected. Yeah, the long-term implications for politics in America of this of this realignment of or this movement, really this migration of people. It's kind of like we talk about the migrants all the time. We have internal migrants here in America, and I'm one of them, from New York to Florida and and many other places. Um, this is going to it's going to change the you know it's going to change obviously congressional apportionment. It's going to change. These, uh, state budgets, it's going to result, I think, in some cities becoming even more boom towns than they, than they already are. But fund- fundamentally, what I think is so, with all this going on, I don't think it's possible anymore to make arguments that what Democrats have been doing in these places is, uh, sensible. And for the most part, they're just going to keep doing it. That's, you know, we've, we've seen the results. It's like we've run the experiment, Clay. We've run it in New York. We've run it in D.C. We've run it in Chicago, L.A., San Francisco, Portland. You know, go down the list. And the people running those places overwhelmingly go, yeah, this is just the way it's going to be. Well, until they decide they need their own version of Giuliani. And and that's where I think we're on the flywheel of progress. One of the great analogies I like to use, Buck, as we get ready to finish off this uh, this segment. Google gets better the more people who use Google. The search results, everything else, the business becomes more effective the more people who use it because they've got a bigger data set, bigger analysis set. They figure out what works. The reverse is happening right now in every major Democrat-run city. The people that are helping to fund much of what goes on there are leaving, and they've now got a flywheel of negativity where every single day things are getting a little bit worse. And you can't blame Donald Trump, and you can't blame Republicans for it. Uh, make your plans to attend an information-packed three-day seminar the first weekend of December. It's the Invest Wealth Summit in Tampa on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. That's December 1st through the 3rd. If you want to learn how to create financial freedom and security for your future, you want to be at the Invest Wealth Summit. Events organized by the team at Rad Diversified, led by co-founder CEO Dutch Mindenhall. There's a lot to learn here and some great speakers on the agenda. My good buddy Buck. 
Well, he's going to be there, as is Tucker Carlson, Lisa Booth, Amy Vaughn, many, many others. Learn how to diversify your portfolio without relying solely on Wall Street. Explore, explore alternative investments. Gain access to unique opportunity and hidden gems. Uncover untapped potential in real estate startups and innovative technologies. Learn how to reduce your tax burden much more. Expand your investment horizons and secure your financial future. Secure your seat at investwealthsummit.com today. The website, investwealthsummit.com. Learn and laugh. Weekdays with Clay Travis and Buck Sexton. Appreciate all of you hanging out with all of us. We're joined now to talk a little bit about the huge mess at our southern border and certainly a warning that's out there about potential terrorists coming across our southern border, given what's going on in Israel right now. We've got Attorney General of Texas Ken Paxton with us suing the Biden administration, as he has been doing for several years now, to try to give Texas the autonomy to protect its own borders. Uh, Mr. Attorney General, appreciate you joining us. Congratulations. I believe you are a Longhorns guy. So far, the season's been pretty good, notwithstanding yeah. what happened against Oklahoma. Uh, it's been a fun, fun year, that's for sure. Uh, so can you give us an update on what you guys are doing to try to fight back against the Biden administration at the southern border and also what the Biden administration is trying to do to keep you from protecting the southern border for Texas? Yeah, it's pretty clear. I mean, day one, the Biden administration, their first day, they came out and said, we're not deporting anybody. And then from there, they set to dismantle every law and policy that was effectively used by the Trump administration to cut back on illegal immigration. And they have been successful at that. They're, the increase has been three to 400 uh, percent from what it was under the Trump administration, and they have done everything possible to aid and abet the cartels because now the cartels know if they bring people to the border, they don't have to hide anymore. It's like they're not running. They're not hiding. No more sneaking across the border. They just wave the flag, and they try to find Border Patrol, and it's it's a pass-off from, from, the, from the cartels who are making money on every person coming across and making money on drugs and killing our children. And they pass it off to the Biden administration. So we've tried to sue them over these issues. We probably have 17 lawsuits going right now. And we just sued them over the, the, the them cutting our wires and our fences, which is hard to believe. I mean, we've seen the, we've seen the video of it. It's hard to believe that the federal government would, in, would inhibit us from keeping people from crossing the border, but they are. Yeah. What is their reasoning for this? I mean, like this, this should be. Uh, something that in a normal world or in a sane world, um, the Biden administration is saying, thanks for trying to help secure the border, Texas. But instead, they make you take down the, I know, razor wire, also, I think, floating barriers in, in the Rio Grande, right? That this has been something else that they've, uh, on, on what basis do they, because it seems to everybody, uh, Attorney General Paxton, like they clearly just want to make it easier for people to come into the country illegally. When you cut wire down, that's exactly what you're doing, right? I mean, there's... I mean, it's not like people can't go. The, the the people that think they can get through on border patrols, you know, 95% of the people turn them in, turn themselves into border patrols. So these are people that couldn't get to there or the cartels didn't want to take them there for some reason. And for them to, like, cut our wire, I mean, that tells you how extreme the Biden position is. It's like, hey, we're not getting enough people in. There's, you know, but millions have come in. We need even more. So let's cut down what Texas is doing and, and allow even more in. I think we have to come to grips with the cartels and the Biden administration are not our friends. They are they are doing things that are harming the country on purpose, 
Texas, on the other hand, is trying to defend our border. And so we're kind of in a, a, a immigration war, illegal immigration war, with the cartels teaming up with the Biden administration, and the rest of us are left to hold the bag and the negative consequences of what they're doing. We're talking to Attorney General Ken Paxton of Texas. Uh, the situation in Israel is obviously an incredibly tumultuous one, but the border now, given that there are threats that are occurring all around the globe, it would be comparatively easy for terrorists to come across our southern border. We know that it only took 19 terrorists in uh, to, to, to inflict 9-11 in terms of people who were actually in the United States. How concerned do you think Americans, whether they live in Texas or elsewhere, should be about terrorists coming across our unsecured southern border? They can watch the news just like everybody else. They can see that it is not difficult to get in now. Well, it's it's just true that terrorists are coming across the border now more than they ever have. They they know there's an open border, and you know just the numbers that the federal government has showing that they you know I think they caught like 151 in the last six months. Uh, that's more than they've caught in the last uh, six other measuring cycles. So we know that the, the numbers have been increasing. We also know we don't catch everybody, and so the Biden administration knows this as well. They. I guess, not I guess, I know that they've come to terms with this and realized that there are going to be terrorists in our country, and they've they've decided that's, that's worth it for whatever they're getting out of illegal immigration. So it's sad to say that they're willing to have terrorists in our country so that they can get as many illegal immigration, immigrants into our country as fast as possible. They are willing to make the trade-off, just like they're willing to make the trade-off on fentanyl overdoses for our kids and our kids dying. They have made that calculation and said, yes, it's worth it to us. Now, when you look at New York City, uh, Attorney General Paxton, they're feeling very clearly the financial uh, burden of migrants that have been bused there from Texas, um, and, and they're saying that it might be something like $12 billion that the city has to spend. That's just one city, um, or just <clears throat> the city, over the next three years to deal with this. I'm wondering, I mean, Texas still gets a lot of uh, and still has a lot of illegal migrants who, who stay in the state. Do, do you have some sense of what the what the cost is, both in terms of money and, and also just a criminal justice system, health care system? I mean, what what are some of the, the numbers as you, as you might be able to lay them out for us? Well, I can tell you this. It's, it's, uh, I don't think anybody knows the true cost because, I mean, you've got education costs, we've got health care costs, we've got law enforcement costs. We have other social costs of, you know, drug overdoses. And it's, it's, I don't think anybody's actually truly measured this, but I do know this. You know, we get, what, six, 7,000 people a day coming in across the border in Texas, and New York gets, you know, what do they get? Maybe that many a year. And the Biden administration has been shifting all federal aid to places like New York City and Chicago, the Democratic cities, who don't have nearly – the number of people coming to their city as we do coming to our state. So the Biden administration has done more to help them because of the, I guess, their liberal politics than they have to help the people of Texas, the people of Arizona, have been left basically stranded by the Biden administration to deal with the overwhelming cost. It's it's billions and billions and billions. I just know we spend, I know what we directly spend, we spend billions of dollars trying to defend our border but that doesn't count all the other costs that I don't think have been measured very well yet. Democrats, uh, Attorney General uh, Paxton, trying to turn Texas purple for a long time. 
Uh, we were talking earlier in the show, and I'm curious if you have any data on this because you've been through quite a few statewide races yourself now. Uh, the state of New York lost 545,000 New Yorkers in the last year to other states. Uh, 30,000 of those people moved to Texas. There's, I live in Tennessee. Buck now lives in Florida. There's a lot of fear in red states that the people who are moving in are going to change the politics there. Do you have any read on what these people who are moving from New York and other states, I know Texas has got a ton of Californians, are they more likely to vote red or are they more likely to vote blue? Do you have any sense on what these transplants are doing to state of Texas politics? Honestly, I think uh, I think a lot of people that are moving here are, are moving here because they're trying to escape bad policies, higher taxes, and all these other states. So I'm not convinced that that's hurting us as much as people say. What I'm more worried about is the fact that now we can't prosecute voter fraud because our Republican Court of Criminal Appeals, other than a guy named Kevin Urey, is made up of nine members, struck down a statute from 1951 that uh, directed the Attorney General to prosecute voter fraud, and they came in the Court of Criminal Appeals, which is our highest court on criminal matters, and said it was unconstitutional because the Attorney General of Texas is in the executive branches and it is not allowed because of separation of powers to go into court. That was their reasoning. It's insane, but it now has created a huge problem because now local DAs have to prosecute voter fraud and the local DAs in the big cities like Austin and Houston and, and San Antonio are funded and paid for by George Soros. They'll never prosecute voter fraud. That is a bigger concern to me than anything else going on. Attorney General Ken Paxton, keep fighting for Texans and Americans with functional brains all over the country. We appreciate you. Hey, thanks a lot. You guys have a great day. Born from the tragedy of 9-11, Tunnel of Towers Foundation is committed to helping our families, heroes, and their families in the darkest hours. Uh, when a first responder, a veteran, doesn't return home, leaves behind a young family, Tunnel of Towers supports them. The foundation pays off their mortgages, lifts their financial burdens through the Gold Star Family Home Program and Fallen First Responder Smart Program. Uh, through the Smart Home Program, severely injured veterans and first responders regain their independence, mortgage-free home, specially adapted to meet their unique physical needs. Let me also tell you something. Uh, I was at the uh, big fundraiser that they did at Liberty National up in New York City uh, last couple of weeks. They had three different moms, three different wives who had lost their husbands stand up and talk in that event, which raised several million dollars about what Tunnel to Towers had done for them. All these moms had young kids when their husbands died, and they were devastated, as you can well imagine, and they couldn't even comprehend how they were going to be able to take care of those young kids that they were raising. Tunnel to Towers and Frank Siller stepped up and paid off the mortgages on every single one of those moms' homes, and they came and told us what a huge difference it made for their recovery. They are really doing good. If you're frustrated about the direction of the country and the fact that there just doesn't seem to be that much positivity out there, let me tell you, the Tone of the Towers people are doing God's work. They are doing an incredible job. Uh, remember, their goal is to do good and never forget. Donate $11 a month. Join Buck and myself in donating to this great organization at T2T.org. That's T, the number two, T.org. You don't know what you don't know, right? 
but you could on the Sunday Hang with Clay and Buck podcast. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on, but we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. We got our friend Miranda Devine with us now from the New York Post, where she's a columnist, also the author of Laptop from Hell. Miranda, great to talk to you. We've got a couple things to uh, run by you today. Thanks for being with us. Uh, great to be with you both. So let, let's start with this one. Um, there was some reporting on Joe Biden paying $2.75 million cash for his Rehoboth Beach House. And there's also some stuff out there about money moving around between various members of the Biden family. Basically, to, to take this at the 30,000-foot level, is the money trail starting to become a bigger problem for the Biden family, or is this still kind of status quo? Look, I, I think it's a real problem for them. And um, James Comer, the House Oversight Committee uh, chairman, is just dogged. He's like a dog with a bone. He has a background in banking and he's just doing um, the pursuit of the money. He's following the money trail and he's, you know, every now and then he just comes up with gold and added together what it gives you is a picture of um, something very different about Joe Biden's involvement in the family's influence peddling operation. Um, He has claimed he knew nothing about it. 
squeaky clean, modest Joe, honest Joe, you know, the poorest man in Congress. And in fact, what we see is money changing hands between him and his brother, $200,000. They say it was a loan, um, but there's no evidence that it's a loan. Uh, the White House is demanding that James Comer produce um, some other, you know, document that shows that it's a loan. But why don't why don't why doesn't the White House produce these documents if they're supposedly exculpatory? Um, and then you know the case about uh, Joe Biden paid three million dollars in cash for that Rehoboth Beach House that he's always at on weekends, um, and that was he paid. Um, that just seven weeks uh, before, or he didn't pay it, the the house was bought just seven weeks before Hunter Biden um, sent that insistent kind of desperate shakedown WhatsApp to a Chinese associate demanding money um, and saying that he was sitting next to his father and that his father was also demanding to know why the commitment made for this $10 million deal had not been fulfilled, had not been paid. And then within a couple of weeks, um, money started being paid from these Chinese associates. And uh, and then a few weeks after that, Joe Biden pays cash for this Rehoboth Beach House. Now, you know, that's circumstantial evidence, but it's still... Uh, raises questions, you have to say to Joe Biden, where did you get the money? And it's really, um, you know, if, if he doesn't want these um, rumours and theories to be abounding every time there's a new um, sort of dodgy financial transaction dug up by James Comer, then I don't understand why the White House just doesn't come clean and say, look, that's completely innocent. Here are the loan papers. Here's the evidence that Joe Biden got a loan from his brother or and, and was paying it back or, or the other way around. Um, here's, uh, you know, Joe Biden paid cash for this beach house because he came into an inheritance or something. Um, you know, just tell us explain why and and stop acting all outraged that people are questioning your integrity because this is a president who lies about everything and whose family um, has accepted that's completely proven has taken in millions of dollars from America's adversaries while he while Joe Biden was vice president. Miranda, what did you thanks for joining us here? What did you think about the New York Times admitting that they over relied on a Hamas report about a hospital getting hit? It's basically an apology. How many other things do you think the New York Times should apologize on? I don't think they've returned any of the Pulitzers they won for the Russia collusion lies. I certainly don't think they've uh, ever issued a public apology about the way they covered the New York Post's uh, expose on the Hunter Biden laptop. Uh, there's any number of things out there that the New York Times has clearly failed when it COVID coverage for sure. What did you think about that acknowledgement, and what does it say that they did acknowledge errors there? Well, look, it was barely an apology, um, and it was obvious from the start um, that they should have been cautious about uh, reporting on that Hamas hospital strike, um, which basically was Hamas's own missiles and it was in the car park so you could just call it a car park fire parking lot fire um you know they lied Hamas and said i think 
700 people had died, children had died. It was just all lies. And as usual, the New York Times, when it suits their ideology, they are incredibly gullible. They just take these terrorists at their word, um, it, just like they took the Steele dossier at its word, um, which was preposterous from the start. And, you, you know, for the New York Times to parade around as if it's the arbiter of fine journalism and to continually um, print lies as if they're true and then cover up afterwards. I mean, it was that old saying from Winston Churchill that a lie is halfway around the world before the truth gets its pants on. Um, it's very difficult once the New York Times has put that Hamas hospital story on its front page with a photograph of a bombed out building that has... Um, that was not the hospital. It was elsewhere. Right. And sort of in the caption in small print, it says, oh, you know, this building in such and such a place. But anybody looking at the front page of the New York Times, that was so misleading because there's the photograph of a bombed out building. There's the headline underneath about this bombed out hospital and, you know, 700 people dead. Of course, the average reader is going to take that as horrendous. I did. When I first saw it, I thought, oh, it must be true, you know. Um, it's it's so dishonest. There are propaganda rag. And, you know, it's not just the New York Times. So AP insists on calling Hamas terrorists uh, militants. Um, and yet, as, you know, Jonathan Turley pointed out, they were very happy to um, call the riot on January 6, 2021 at the Capitol an insurrection. And they wanted to use even stronger language. And yet... Um, they didn't. They didn't like anybody using the term riot to describe the summer of riots um, that happened in 2020. They wanted to call them, you know, unrest or peaceful demonstrations. We're speaking to Miranda Devine of the New York Post, and Miranda, I also want to ask you because your most recent column was on this. Uh, the, Sydney Powell has pleaded guilty. Jenna Ellis has pleaded guilty in the Georgia election racketeering case. But for people who think that that, that specifically Sidney Powell plea is a big deal for Trump, you say not so fast. Well, no. Um, basically, uh, I think that they, you know, they slapped felonies on all these lawyers around Trump and, and people like Mark Meadows and um, just to intimidate them and then, you know, force them to plead guilty to a misdemeanor and and, of course, then testify against Trump. And it's just a familiar ruse to put pressure on their target, which, of course, is Trump, um, and make him feel like he's isolated and everyone's betraying him. Um, but the fact is, when it comes to Sidney Powell anyway, um, she's not going to be a great witness because um, all her nonsense about the Kraken and, you know, the voting machines that were hacked by I don't know, Hugo Chavez's ghost or something. Um, that was uh, very early on just dismissed by Rudy Giuliani initially. He fired her. Um, and, uh, and then when she somehow managed to inveigle her way into the White House in that sort of stormy meeting in, in December of uh, 2020 when um, she was asking Trump to make her a special counsel in charge of investigating the election and overturning the election and um, and saying that he should be sending the military in to seize voting machines, just all this nonsense. And um, Trump called Rudy Giuliani on the phone and got him to rush over to the White House to sort of 
um, mediate in this dispute that had grown up between Sydney Powell and Patrick Byrne and um, General Flynn on one side, um, trying to pressure Trump to do these crazy things. And on the other side, you had the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone and his people, um, just in a screaming match with them, telling them they were nuts. And so Trump asked Giuliani to come over and mediate. He did that. He soon realised that Sidney Powell had never had any evidence for the stuff she was saying and um, he told Trump so and Trump basically threw Sidney Powell out, firing her for the... For he, he firing for the first time, Rudy firing her for the third, for the second time. You know, she didn't have any credibility. Um, her nonsense never got far and uh, so what has she got to say? She can say, well, I, I tried to get the president to do these crazy things, but he said no. So I don't think it's going to be very harmful, um, certainly not from what Rudy Giuliani said under oath uh, to the January 6th committee and repeated to uh, Jack Smith's special counsel. What you just all laid out, Miranda, is so interesting, and we're coming up against it here. So uh, I just want to ask you big picture. You've covered these stories for a long time. You're intimately involved in so many of them. Do you think that what happens in these Trump trials, assuming that it's Trump v. Biden in 2024, is going to impact the way that people vote? Or do you think everybody's just kind of made up their minds one way or the other about Trump and Biden? And this is all a big sideshow, but in terms of actual voting, it's not going to have much impact at all. Look, I think you've got to say it will have an impact, but, um, uh, you know, I think it has to take a toll on Donald Trump. All these uh, court cases, they're designed to undermine him. And although he's incredibly resilient and although he's savvy enough to be using these court appearances um, as part of a, you know, free publicity uh, for his campaign, at some point, it's going to drown out his message. I mean, he has a fantastic message, which is, uh, you know, do you miss me yet? Uh, look how good things were when I was president. There were no wars there. You know, the economy was singing. Um, and look at Biden now, who's just half cooked. And, uh, you know, he, he just seems to be constantly talking about and in the frame for these court cases, which just really reinforce the hatred of him by the never Trumpers. And, um, you know, I, I, I think while Donald Trump has a huge um, pull among his followers, I think he has an equal uh, pull um, if, with the people who uh, hate him, his detractors, and he's the best get-out-the-vote weapon that the Democrats have. Miranda Devine, everybody, go check out her latest at the New York Post. Miranda, thanks for being with us. Thanks, guys. A wise man once said, a man doesn't need brilliance or genius. All he needs is energy. Well, look, I might debate that you also want intelligence and common sense, too, but there's no debating that you definitely need energy. you got to have it. End of story, or else you're not going to get through the day the way you need to. And a lot of a man's energy and drive comes from testosterone levels. And when that's lacking, which happens as we age, you really feel it. But you can do something about that with Chalk Daily Supplements. The male vitality stack is formulated specifically for men that are experiencing a decline in their T levels. The leading ingredient has been proven in studies to replenish diminished amounts of testosterone by some 20% in three months' time. As you make Chalk's male vitality stack a part of your daily regimen, you'll find a new source of energy giving you more drive and more stamina, maybe even more focus. Find Chalk's products online. Their website's easy to remember. 
Chalk, C-H-O-Q dot com. It's spelled C-H-O-Q dot com. You'll save 35% on your subscription for life when you use my name, Buck, in your purchase process. That's 35% off for life at Chalk, C-H-O-Q dot com. Use my name, Buck, as the promo code. Learn, laugh, and join us on the weekend on our Sunday Hang with Clay and Buck podcast. Find it on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. 